Hello and welcome back to I Want Her Job, the podcast. I'm your host, Polina Sluton. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Esther Wojcicki, to discuss her new book, How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. There's no doubt the book will be a bestseller since Esther has had such tremendous success as a mother and teacher. Each of Esther's daughters have tremendous career achievements. Daughter Susan is the CEO of YouTube, Janet is a professor of pediatrics at University of California, San Francisco, and Anne is the founder and CEO of genetic testing company 23andMe. Esther, known as Waj by her students, has been at the center of Silicon Valley for her entire career as an influential teacher and as a dedicated community member. With Google famously beginning daughter Susan's garage, Esther has truly been surrounded by the tech revolution. Hundreds of Esther students still keep in touch with her, and as her daughters say in the books forward, they often meet former students who say, you know, your mom really changed my life. She believed in me. In this conversation, Esther shares her philosophy for raising independent, kind, and community-oriented children, and why Esther believes that kindness, finding ways to help others, and the quality of our relationships are at the forefront of a happy life. Esther also shares how tragedy and other intense difficulties during her childhood influenced her parenting philosophy. Esther is a teacher at heart, a really fun and caring teacher who understands how to help children thrive by giving them trust, respect, and helping them build independence for the rest of their lives. Esther's life is such a beautiful example of the impact one teacher can have, the power of teaching and believing in her students and in children. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend. Here is Esther. I'm curious, so it's not a surprise to me that you wrote this book, but how often are you asked for parenting advice? Like 10 times a day, all the time. <laughs> Everybody wants to know. Yeah. And it's constant. Yeah. And that's actually one of the reasons I wrote the book, mm-hmm. is because everybody wanted to know. And I thought, well, gee, maybe if I write it, then I won't have to say it anymore. You know, Make, it was kind of self-defense. Like, I'll write it all down then they can have a book and then they can follow the manual. And then, you know, I can go about my, you know, daily life. As you were writing it, did you, did you come up, like, did things surprise you? I mean, it's probably that you've been giving out this advice, but now that you had to structure it into a book and really think about your kind of philosophy and how you've done it, did you come up with something that you hadn't thought of before? Well, so it took me a long time to come up with that trick acronym. I was trying to figure out what I had done. Mm -hmm. And then I was also trying to figure out what I had done in the classroom that made everybody want to take my class and made them all really happy. I mean, a lot of my students, we're talking hundreds here, maybe more, are still in touch with me. And so why are you still in touch with the teacher? Clearly, I did something that really impacted their life. And so what did I do? And I was trying to figure it out. So that's what I, that's how I came up with this whole trick thing. And I did it first for a talk I gave at a TEDx conference in Boston. Um, And then, and you know, it it sort of resonated with people, but it was, you know, I had just done it for the talk. And then I wrote a first book in 2015 and I made it into a chapter about trick and how it was important. And then when I realized how important it really was. I literally wrote this book and the whole book is organized around trick. Mm-hmm. That's the first part is trust and then respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. There's no chapters in the book. It's all around that, that acronym. We, can we start with 
your early influences. So you describe in your book, you had some really devastating things that happened and difficulties, losing your younger brother. Um, you mentioned financial difficulties. Can you tell us some of the ways that your upbringing and the sorrow of those events influenced your future and the kind of parent you became? Well, so that tragic event that happened when I was 10 um, really had a huge impact on me. Of course, I didn't realize it at the time. You know, you, you're a child, so you don't know and you don't say to yourself, oh, I'm going to do this now or I'm going to do that now. But what it did is that, you know, the death of my brother, um, do you want me to explain what happened? Yeah, yeah. So um, he was 18, 16 to 18 months old. I can't remember exactly. And he was in the kitchen playing on the floor with a, bottle, with a bunch of stuff. And he came across a bottle of aspirin. And it was prior to the time that Bayer had these safety aspirin covers, you know, because now they've got these covers that you can't open child safety. So anyway, he opened it and then he ate all the aspirin or a lot of it. And my mother, being an immigrant, um, she didn't know quite what to do. And, you know, she'd never had this experience. She, and she did not believe in herself. That's the number one thing I realized in reflecting on this. Mm. So she called the doctor to find out what she should do. And the doctor must have been busy, like most pediatricians, and he didn't listen carefully. And so that's the only ex answer I can ex think about, because otherwise he never would have said which what he said was put him to bed and see how he is in a few hours. Mm -hmm. well, of course, you don't put a bit kid to bed if they've ingested a poison. Um, you actually take action right away. But, you know, being not confident of herself, and as I said, you know, I think it's the mentality of coming to America and you're like, oh, everything's so much better here and people know so much more here and, you know, so she just followed what he said and he was became violently ill and then we took him to have a stomach pump at a county hospital but he was still very ill and they wouldn't keep him so we went from hospital to hospital trying to get him accepted but they didn't have any proof of payment because we were so poor so he died in the fourth hospital um, that they finally had accepted him but it was too late so this really impacted me because what it said to me is trust yourself. Don't believe what people tell you, no matter how long their title is, no matter what they claim is true. You have to verify and believe in it yourself. Think for yourself. So, um, so that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And you know, I became a regular user of the library um, and I was, I mean, what's great about a library is you walk up and down the stacks and you see books that are just interesting and you just pull them off the shelf and you can read it right there. I mean, we miss that now because a lot of people don't go to the library. They just go online. They buy the book, which is, you know, I guess that's good for the authors, but it would be great if there'd be some way to browse, you know, and be able to take things off the shelf the way we did in back in the old days. Anyway, I read a lot because I was really concerned about making sure I understood the world. And um, when I became a parent, the, my main goal for my daughters was I wanted them to be able to get information themselves and be independent. I wanted them to be independent thinkers because 
as a, I, again, I didn't say it to myself, but it was in, in my behavior. I wanted them to be able to protect themselves. I wanted them to be able to think out of any situation because it was for me almost a life and death situation. Mm-hmm. If you didn't, you could end up with some tragic situation like my brother did. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of my parenting. But I also, interestingly enough, did that in school with students because my situation there was, wow, this system does not seem to work for them. And maybe I should try something else. I, I became an, a sort of a, an, a, an evaluator. It was an experiment for me. What, would, what was the most effective way for students to learn? And how fast could you learn something? That was what I was really interested in finding out. And my daughters were my guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. Like how quickly could you learn something? And I wasn't talking about learning the alphabet or colors or anything. It was just like, you know, street smart. How long could you, would, how old did you have to be to learn to swim? Because we had a swimming pool in the backyard. And I was like, don't want to have any of those bad situations happening in my house. So what, at what age can you teach a child to swim? Well, most people said five. And then I bought myself a book, also said five. The name of the book was How to Teach Your Child to Swim. <laughs> By the way, I still have it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I was like, well, maybe they don't know. Maybe there's other things that you can do to teach your child to swim earlier. And I just tried all these techniques out. And it turns out you can teach a child to swim when they're 12 months old. And that's what they did. They learned how to swim really early. And um, and then I felt safe. They could swim not from one side of the pool to the other, but one end of the pool to the other. So if they felt in, they could swim. And that's all I wanted them to be able to do. So then it continued to other things. You know, I was in the business of trying to help them be independent. So when you are trying that with your children, then you give them a lot of opportunities that you might not otherwise. Yeah. And I, I thinking about what happened to you and your brother, I mean, you didn't let it destroy you because something so devastating could turn you against the world. And, and instead it, it feels to me like you taught them to be strong and independent. So something like that wouldn't happen because I can, I can see like, how much anger you would have that 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 even that that's possible to happen in this world but instead you equip them with their own tools right to to prevent that is that's that right i pre- equip them with their own tools to prevent that and actually that's what i am doing in the classroom with journalism because i see journalism or the skills a journalist has as the most important skills that you need for life not just to be a journalist because you're collecting information from multiple sources, then in all that information, you have to figure out what's most important because you can't write it all down. Mm -hmm. And then you have to communicate it in a way that other people can understand it. And so that's one of the reasons that I am so passionate about all kids need to have media literacy skills because that's what we're doing as human beings, as adults, we're collecting information But then what happens is we don't have that skill of figuring out what's most important and analyzing it. And we should, and all kids should be able to do that. They shouldn't just memorize. 
and the school system encourages memorization. The teacher lectures, gives you a book, read the book, and then you have to tell them exactly what it is that you know the teacher said or the book said. As a matter of fact, we have a whole industry called cliff notes. <laughs> cliff notes, you read the cliff notes because then you know what it is that the teacher wants you to know after having read the book. Of course, nobody reads the book now. They read the cliff notes. Mm. So that's, you know, and actually books have a lot of messages, not just the ones from the cliff notes. Anyway, so that's just my, my, my thought process and why I teach the way I do. And you know, what's interesting to me and probably another reason why your students love you so much and you've been such a great parent, so you're also optimistic and joyful. So I'm curious, given the difficulties in your childhood, where do you think that joyfulness and optimism comes from? Was it still there in, in your early family or where do you think it comes from? That's a good question. Um, where does it come from? You know, I've always had this incredible sense of play. Mm -hmm. And um, it certainly wasn't from my father. And my mother was pretty straight arrow also. Hmm. Um, she was a wonderful person, very loving and caring, your typical Jewish mother. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the sense of play came because I've always had a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I've always seen the funny things that happen in life. And, um, and I think the sense of play grew from that because there were a lot of really bad things that happened to me growing up. And I, my theory was I could cry about it or I could laugh about it. Mm -hmm. And I decided I preferred laughing about it. And so that just continued um, through my teenage years and, you know, through college. And I mean, cause I had some, a lot of struggles. Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably could relate to this. Um, you know, in an Orthodox Jewish family, the role of a woman is as the mother, the housekeeper, the, the mother of future generations. And so my parents did not see a role for me in going to college. Mm -hmm. they, wanted to get, they wanted me to get married at the age of 18, graduate from high school and get married. And they had like candidates out there, <laughs> pre-selected, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, nope, it's not going to be for me. Mm -hmm. But they pretty much disowned me financially wow. because I would not follow their instructions. And, you know, I had to, I had to just do it on my own. But, you know, I could be bitter, which a lot of people are. But I also realized early on, and I don't know where I got that. I think I read a lot of philosophy and psychology when I was in the library reading. And I realized that anger hurts the person who carries the anger. And I decided that I believed it and I didn't want to carry the anger. So even though they did all that stuff to me, I did not carry the anger. I just went along and I said, well, here's another path and I have to tackle that path. Um, yeah. And I, you know, because I went off to Berkeley and I had no money. 
and I had to somehow manage to survive. It was tough, <clears throat> but I did it. Yeah, and I mean, when I think of a life fulfilled, your life, I mean, as a, as a mother, as a teacher, a community member, it's life fulfilled. It's, it's extraordinary what you've accomplished. And I'm curious, your daughters didn't have the same struggles, yet they've grown up to be so kind, compassionate, hungry to improve society, make things better. How, did, how do you think they got to be so hungry and ambitious? You know, I think people learn through stories. That's why I wrote the book around stories. And I'm hoping people will learn from the stories. And I think what I did as a mother, first of all, I know that I read a lot of stories from the library because we had a routine. Every Saturday we went to the library. And we got new books. And, but I also told them lots of stories about growing up. I tried to make them not traumatic. Um, and I also told them lots of stories from my mother growing up in Siberia. And I think the storytelling and my passions and also my, what I was doing in life, what I was modeling for them, I think had a really strong impact on them. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't just sit home as a mother, even though I wasn't working. I was doing things to try to make the community better. Mm -hmm. I was an activist. So I worked to get a, for example, there was no park in our community. So I worked to get a park. And so now we have a park. And then I worked to make sure that all the kids that lived on the Stanford campus had access to the Palo Alto libraries. That was just another thing that I was important for me because I thought we're all part of the same community. Why shouldn't we be able to use the library? knowing how important libraries are, right? So, um, and I think that's what happened. They saw me do this on a regular basis. Um, and I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm modeling this for my kid. Oh, I'm doing this just to model. This was my way of life. Mm -hmm. And then I realized afterward that your kids model after you. I, I didn't, I, I guess I didn't realize it until I was thinking about how did that happen? Mm -hmm. I guess the question comes up, well, if you model after your parents, why didn't you model after your parents, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer is, I saw the tragedy, mm -hmm. and I did not want to repeat that tragedy. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't want to be a mother like that, and I didn't want a husband that would be a father like my father was. Mm -hmm. So... That was it. Yeah. You have, you have this line in the book, how parenting is an opportunity to pass on our principles and values and affect eternity and how our impact will go on for generations. And I thought that was, wow, so powerful. Did you, when you first became a mom, did you think like that right away? Or is that something that's evolved? You know, um, I'm kind of sentimental. So I thought about that uh, right away. Um, I grew up with this philosophy, the Sadaka, mm -hmm. and um, basically make the world a better place philosophy. And, and I, I didn't know that was true, but I guessed that that might be true because I realized the power and importance of teachers and that teachers really prepare 
society for the future. The impact of teachers is just tremendous. And people, society needs to know that. People need to know that. If you look at countries that are struggling, the main cause of the struggle is the poor education system. Mm -hmm. And so if they can improve their education system, and if governments realized how important it is, they would spend more time and resources with that. And so this was just my gut reaction and also, I guess, my upbringing of spending um, every Saturday in a synagogue. Mm -hmm. That's what Orthodox Jewish little girls do. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I didn't listen very much. You know, you're not participating, mm -hmm. but you listen enough to know that you are trying to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, how much uh, religion did you bring to your family life? Uh, how much of it did you keep? Well, my, I married a Catholic. <laughs> and so I saw a lot of common values between Christianity and Judaism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically the same. There's some major differences, but the values are really the same. And so I tried to bring both groups together and in what I was doing. And um, my daughters spent a lot of time, well, not a lot, but they spent time in both religions. Mm -hmm. And then I gave them the opportunity. I didn't tell them what to do or what to be. I said, you can be whatever you want to be. And that includes being nothing. Um, I just want you to know that the principles are the same, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know, the caring for other people as really being kind and compassionate. Uh, let's start with the trick values. So trust, you talk about, well, I like how you um, open with there's a uh, not enough trust in our society and you have the funny story of taking your daughter's kids to Target and leaving them there, which um, made me laugh because it's true. We are all so scared and not trusting. And I'm curious about some of the ways that you build trust with your students and your kids. So trust is really the core of it because if you trust somebody and respect goes along with it. And if you trust somebody in both at home as a parent and your spouse, I mean, these are critical ways to behave with your family because then, you know, you relax and you also trust in yourself, but it's a foreign concept in some sense to schools because schools are built around no trust. Mm -hmm. So, and I realized that how powerful it was to trust your students in school, because if you trust them and believe in them, they are so happy about that, that they will then trust themselves and then work really hard to make sure they never lose your trust. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the cores of grit. Mm -hmm. They, my students, and I'm, I have a co-teacher who feels exactly the same. He is great. His name is Rod Satterwhite. And actually there are seven journalism teachers at Palo Alto High School. 
And we all feel the same way. And the classes are all run based on the trick model. We trust our students. And fortunately, you know, I'm like lucky to have these people there. But what it does is it makes the students want their publication, whichever one it is, to be the best it can be. So our number one problem is it's time to go home and they don't want to go home. So it's mm -hmm. the opposite of cutting class. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's also, you, you give several examples in the book about how when you believe your students will perform, and then they do. So similar, like the trust, if you trust them, they'll li live up to your trust. So I think right. Dominic, can you tell us the story of Dominic? He was the one who got into my class accidentally. He was a um, low-performing student, mm -hmm. um, very low. And he accidentally was scheduled into my class by the computers, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it took me about two weeks to realize he didn't belong in the class because his reading skills and writing skills were really low. And I was like, oh, my God, mm -hmm. what am I going to do with this kid? And so I said to him, you know, you're in the wrong class. Do you want me to, you know, whose class would you like to move to? And because, you know, this is the, this is the upper lane. And he didn't even belong in the regular lane. He belonged in the lower lane. Mm -hmm. He's like, nope, I'm not going. He had bonded. He decided he wanted to stay. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, look, if you're really going to stay and you want to be in my class, you're going to have to stay after school with me every day and do, you know, some of the work to catch up because otherwise you're not going to be able to do well. Can you believe it? Here's a low-income kid mm -hmm. without any skills who did that. And not for just a month the entire year. And at the end of the year, he was caught up. And not only that, he joined the journalism program where he became a writer. And today he graduated, he got a full scholarship in New York. Oh my God. And today he's an executive in New York. Wow. All big, well, amazing. Like this is an example of what an incredible teacher you are. And, and you believed in him and someone believed in him and he lived up to it. Right. It, but that's what teachers can do for students, because when you believe in them, they believe in themselves and they want to please you. They want you to believe in them. So they work like crazy, just like that kid worked. I mean, not every day. Can you imagine? It was a boy every day after school. You know how exciting it is to stay with the teacher. That he did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so let's talk about, uh, also, you really excelled at making your daughters fearless. Um, and I'm curious, what things do you worry about? And how do you deal with your worries? Because uh, as I was reading that, I was wondering if you, if you, if you ever worry. <laughs> well, of course, you know, I do worry. Mm -hmm. but, um, but what I try to do is, like I say, that my number one defense is I've taught them to think independently. Mm -hmm. So you don't worry as much as you would if you hadn't done that. That's why I think these, these helicopter parents, mm -hmm. they worry a lot because they haven't prepared their kid for the road. They're out there preparing the road for the kid. So when the child goes out in the real world, they're frantic. Because they know that that child can't, doesn't have any of the skills they need. Mm 
because the parent has been there doing it for yeah. them. Yeah. So that's why I would think you need to start, go step back and give them some control. It's hard to step back all at once. It's not like you all of a sudden going to let them jump into the pool if they don't know how to swim. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can do little things to step back, especially when they're small. And if you're a teenage, if they're teenagers already, teenagers have their number one attribute is this fierce desire for independence. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's all this battling because the kid wants to be independent. The parent like, ah, no. So I suggest letting them be independent, to have a discussion with them, talk to them. The, the lines of communication break down in teenage years. And then kids are afraid to tell their parents what they're doing or thinking. Make sure that you treat them with respect and compassion and kindness. So if they make a mistake, they can go to you, not to someone else. Yeah. They, you want them to go to you. And my daughter Susan said in a recent interview, I thought was interesting. She said she was never afraid to tell me what she was doing or thinking. I think that is really interesting. And I think most teenagers can't say that about their parents. And it's because those parents are, are going to be really upset and going to punish them, child. And so if there's a lot of punishment and no compassion, well, of course you're going to hide. Mm-hmm. And you started really young. So I'm thinking if, if you start this young, like I have an eight-year-old, I read your book and I told her, okay, at your friend's house, I'm going to trust you to do the right thing. So the sooner you start uh, setting that expectation of trust, right? I would think it becomes easier, hopefully, when they're teenagers. It becomes easier when they're teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean... Because then you know when there's a two-way street. You know when they're telling you the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a few times that my kids lied to me. I put them in the book. You know, one of them is the party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. They did that part. It's my fault. You know, you never leave an empty house with teenagers <laughs> because it's just too big of a... Tempting. Yeah. Yeah. It's too hard. You know, later on, they told me what they did. And they did clean up. I mean, the house was never so clean. They're still extremely responsible. Uh, Well, and then you talk about how, you know, Janet was working in Johannesburg when the crime rate was really high there and Anne traveling for months to to Siberia to visit her grandmother's home, which in itself, I think is amazing that she did that. But just these things that I feel would drive me nuts with worry. So, and you were worried. So what what did you do while you were worried during those times? Well, I said to myself, because you have to talk to yourself, that I have given them all the skills that they need to make intelligent choices, and I just hope and pray that that's what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what you have to do. It's hard. Um, if you're, just imagine, you know, if your child wants to be a, a professional skier or a competitive skier, you know how hard it is to watch them when they go up on a very steep hill and then they're coming down when they're, but you know, you don't learn any of those skills. You don't learn how to be an Olympic skier or swimmer or any of those sports by protecting them and holding on to them mm. and making them into fearful. And so I, it was hard because especially 
I think there's a story in there about like, God, I hadn't heard from Anne for like, there was no phones, right? Mm -hmm. And it was like month or longer, maybe two. And I was like, God, where is she? Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, I don't, it's easier today, let's just say for parents, much easier because we all have phones Mm -hmm. so they can check in. But even with phones, you know, parents tend to be much more restrictive and controlling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because I think we all perceive the world as a more dangerous place. And perhaps the reason we do is because we have so much social media and they never report, you know, the grass is growing nicely. <laughs> yeah. They report all terrible things that happen. And then frequently they exaggerate. And so we're like, oh my God, this is such a dangerous place. I have to protect my child. They're never going to make it unless I do. So I don't think the world is as dangerous as they think. Um, Steven Pinker wrote a book about that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of statistics out there. Mm -hmm. But it's going to take a lot. Maybe you should just trust your kid a little, you know, to get started. Because I know it's hard for parents. And I don't want to make parents be more apprehensive than they already are. Just like little bits, just like that idea of sending them to Target by themselves. Oh my God. Target (laughs) is not exactly dangerous, you know? (laughs) I've been in a lot of Targets and I can tell you they're well run. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Little, little baby steps. Um, Little baby steps. Yeah. And you, you talk about how sports are really important to the development of kids. Can you tell us some of the ways sports you think influenced your daughter's? So sports teach you first teamwork. They also teach you grit because you compete at your best because you're part of a team. They also teach you how to lose because no one wins all the time. Mm -hmm. So those are really important skills. And they also teach you how to communicate. So you have to talk to the other people on your team. And you have to talk to the coach and you have to talk to tell other people, like, what are your plans? How are we going to try to win this game? I think all kids should be involved in sports. Mm -hmm. And um, there is no substitute. And in the big cities where kids don't do sports or they think they're just doing an individual sport, they're playing tennis. Oh, no, that's not enough. You have to do a team sport. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to do tennis, be on the tennis team, right? You're going to do track, be on the track team. Swimming, swimming is individual, but be on a swim team. You know, you, you learn so much from being on a team. It's fun. It keeps you from getting fat. <laughs> it teaches you how to exercise for life. I mean, I don't see any downside. It's yeah. great. And then you love watching sports on TV. Oh, it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You mentioned in the book the time Susan came home from preschool talking about the marshmallow she didn't eat. And um, this, she was actually the kid in the famous marshmallow experiment at Stanford at preschool. Right. And that really made me laugh. Like, I mean, it's crazy. You've been in the center of Silicon Valley. Like, you know, Google, Steve Jobs bringing computers to your classroom. Do you ever just think how amazing it is that you are just in the center of all of it? You know, every now and then I do stop and think, my God, how did this happen Mm -hmm. that I was in the center of all of this stuff? Because, and actually, even before I came to Silicon Valley, I was at Berkeley Mm -hmm. in the center of that student revolution at Berkeley in the 60s. And, 
you know, I applied to one school, Berkeley, and I got in with a scholarship. It was all pure luck. Um, because in today's world, kids apply to 10 schools. And, and then also, you know, I went with no financial resources. I went to school from where I lived in LA to Berkeley on a bus. You know, my parents didn't drive me. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was pretty unusual too. I'm just lucky. I mean, I would luck because sometimes you're in the right place at the right time. You really were. We'll talk about, you know, uh, Susan's garage being used for Google. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of, you were definitely in the right place a long time, but I also kind of believe in a little bit of fate and destiny. Because, <laughs> uh, it's well, so with Susan and the garage, mm-hmm. you know, you have to remember that what happened is that she bought a house that she couldn't afford. Mm-hmm. She only realized it when the mortgage payment came, right? <laughs> so, you know, most people, you could cry. There goes my humor stuff. Yeah. Okay, she is with this house, six bedrooms, three bathrooms, and two people. I was like, mm-hmm. really? Do we really need all those bedrooms? Mm-hmm. And so without that incredible need to pay the rent on this house that she had bought on the spur of the moment, right? She would not have had the garage for Google, she wouldn't have been able to rent it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes things happen mm-hmm. for purpose. Well, maybe I just randomly, but thank God that she wasn't able to pay the rent <laughs> because <laughs> she met Larry and Sergey. Yeah, best home purchase of all time. Um, so, yeah, so let's talk about independence because you've been so good at teaching independence. Like, what are some of the kind of tips you have, like in early childhood, like? you know, elementary school age to start teaching that independence to kids? Well, independence is like independence of thought and you can reinforce it as a parent. Like for example, what do we want to have for dinner tonight? Do you want to help set the menu? Independence. Mm-hmm. I would like to find out how many kids out there have determined what we're going to have for dinner tonight. I would say not very many. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, what are we going to be doing this weekend? You know, we have one day free. What do we want to do? So my kids were pretty much in control, which resulted in me seeing pretty much every single park in San Francisco. I don't think I ever would have picked this myself, mm-hmm. but that's what happened. All the parks up and down the peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of ways for kids to exert their or to show independence and for parents to help promote independence it's just give them some decision making capabilities i can give you a recent one that is probably going to impact us for a long time one of my grandchildren we just got two new dogs and one of my grandchildren named the dogs we are dealing with those names oh no forever (laughs) but I can tell you she is thrilled Mm -hmm. that she had that opportunity to name the dogs Mm -hmm. and she's whenever anybody gets the two they look like twins but she can tell them apart Mm -hmm. and when we get the name wrong she corrects us no that is not the right name you have to you know and she's anyway so she turns out to be seven and in charge Mm-hmm. And then I have another granddaughter who's four. 
and who speaks Spanish and English because she's grown up with both languages. She corrects me when I get something wrong in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Four-year-old knows more than I do. And well, of course, in Spanish. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she has a total sense of independence because it's been sort of built into giving her a lot of opportunity for making choice. Got it. So just giving them the opportunity to make the decisions and choices in daily life. And even like on vacations or where to go on the weekend, what to have for dinner. Sounds right. like that. Shopping, you know, go shopping with it. What should we have for dinner this week? You know, it's fun to shop. And you yeah, know, you're definitely a teacher at heart because you said you even used every shopping trip as an experience, which inspired me, right? Have them make a list and pick out what right. they need. I, I think I am. I'm, I'm a teacher at heart. And sometimes it's great, but it also has its drawbacks because I remember just recently on the weekend, I was rounding up all these grandkids, there were a lot of them, mm-hmm. nine. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my daughter is like, mom, you don't have to use your teacher voice now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have to call them. They're all over the place. Oh my God. <laughs> Well, speaking of teaching, so you talked about when you started, you had these certain guidelines, I think, you know, kids should pay attention and certain number, you had to like critique 150 papers. And instead of getting jaded or saying, you don't want to do it, um, giving up, you know, being depressed about it, you changed it and you decided to let the students teach themselves. Um, which I thought was amazing and such a, a indication of your personality. Like you don't, you don't listen to authority, you listen to what works. So I'm curious how your teaching style has evolved over the years. But I think that that is true, what you said. Um, If it doesn't work, and if the system doesn't support what I'm doing, I look for a path Mm -hmm. that makes it work. I look for some ways to change it within the system somehow Mm -hmm. that makes it still possible to happen, which is what I did with my teaching. And also the reason the program is so effective is because I took feedback on a regular basis from my students about what could be better about this class. And I did it every quarter, every semester. And back in the days when you wrote it out, so I would just print a little paper and have them write what they thought was good or bad about it. And I incorporated their suggestions. And, you know, if it made sense, I would do it. And some of the stuff was a little bit wacky and out there. Uh But I tried it anyway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can say it's been remarkable. The students have just done, they've come up with great ideas. And I have been lucky enough to be able to implement them. Mm -hmm. And also... You know, I use, as I told you, I have a kind of a wicked sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And so I've used humor a lot, especially when things don't go well. So for example, one day, just this past school year, we had four fire alarms in one day. They were all fake, of course. Somebody figured out how to do it, some kid in the school. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can cry. Or you can laugh. You have two choices, really, you know. <laughs> and so I made it into a game. And, you know, here I am with 60 kids and my co-teacher. 
And, you know, we decided that it was going to be a, a special opportunity that we didn't have before to exercise. <laughs> Love it. So that's what we did. And, um, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens in life that you don't plan. And so one of the things I say in the book is, you know, you can't plan for all the things that are going to happen. But what you can do and control is your reaction to those things that happen. Yeah. Um, amazing. And so you talk about, you started globalmoonshots.org. So your teaching style is working. So I'm so excited. What are your goals for globalmoonshots.org and, um, and how it'll change maybe teaching, right? Across. Well, with Global Moonshots, I'm hoping that we'll be able to offer sort of a, an institute that would certify schools that are having, that are trying to implement the trick philosophy and um, that are trying to give kids more agency. Uh, so the goal of that is to get it into the textbooks, to get it into the parenting, to get it into the way that we treat people in the business world. And um, so with textbooks, I'm hoping to work with a, with a textbook company um, and then, you know, having booklets or little books for parents on how to do this. And then uh, for teachers, for the uh, Global Moonshots, and it, it's a place for people to donate to enable schools to um, use resources that will develop. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually in development. Um, to bring this to all schools. Mm -hmm. all, because I don't care whether it's low income, middle or high income, all these kids need it. Mm -hmm. And they will work really hard to do it. That doesn't mean, oh yeah, part of this philosophy, by the way, I say it's only 20% of the time in the schools. 80% of the time you can continue teaching traditional methods because it's very hard to change that. The whole system is based on the testing and everything. But if we could just allot 20% of the time to empowering kids, that'll make a huge impact. Give them an opportunity to have a say. Give them an opportunity to have someone believe in their passion. And right now, most kids will graduate from high school, 12 years of school, and say no one believed in them. Oh. That's a sad story. Yeah, no, so exciting what you're doing with that organization. Um, and speaking of that, like what you'd mentioned in the book, oh, well, the helicopter parenting and some of the negative consequences in research. What uh, are you able to see it? Like when you see a student, can you can you pinpoint like? Yeah, they're stressed. Hmm. They have all kinds of psychological problems. They have health problems. Have all these kids that are diagnosed with test anxiety disorder. Um, and then they're given a special IEP, which means that they can take tests and um, without time. Um, that includes the SAT test. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot, a lot more kids that have test anxiety and just anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my theory is that no one is trying to depress them. Nobody's trying to make them anxious. But it's just somehow in society, their parents are anxious. It's like the sixth sense, you know, mm -hmm. get that without you telling them. Mm -hmm. um, they, they sense it. And 
think we all need to calm down. You know, if your child doesn't go to Stanford, it doesn't matter. You know, where they go to school is not important. It's how they do in that school that matters. How their peers feel about them, the friends they make and the collaboration that happens. That's what makes a difference, not the name of the school. Absolutely. I love how much in the book you talk about kindness and you give tips and just like really simple things we can all do throughout the day. Show up on time, be nice to the people you see during the day. Um, and how that's just one thing we can all model every day, like every single day. Uh, I love that. that, yeah, that makes a huge difference. Just showing up on time is so important because if you're late all the time, what does it say to that other person mm -hmm. that you don't respect their time? And, you know, I think we need to realize that no matter who it is if, that you're meeting, we all need to respect and trust and be kind to each other. Smile, you know, say hello. Mm -hmm. How are you? Mm -hmm. You know, it's nice and it makes you feel better and it makes the world feel better. Yeah, and also like you talk about, you know, what you model is what you get. And if we say one thing and do another, if, we, if we're on our phones, we can't expect our kids to act differently. If we're yelling at our spouses, how can we expect them to act differently? That's absolutely true. Yeah. You model What you model is what your children are going to be doing. They don't do what you say. They do what you do. So if you go to the park with them and then you're on your phone all the time, mm -hmm. what message are you sending? Or if you say you take their phones away at dinner and say no phones at dinner, and then you answer the phone yourself because, oh my God, this is a really important call. What are you saying? Well, maybe one of their friends is calling them with some important thing too, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Just because it's not about a business deal doesn't mean it's not important to them. You need to, I think we need to model what we want our kids to do. And right now we're modeling addiction to our electronic devices. And we need to realize that it's okay to use them, but in moderation. I'm, and I'm curious, and with your daughters and, and, and your grandchildren, is there things that your daughters are doing with the phones or that you've seen or that you do around phone rules that are working? Well, I think the main thing that we do is we make the phone rules collaborative. So, you know, we talk about them. We give them opportunities and talk about, how much time you should spend on a phone. We want them to know what, how important it is to have interaction skills with other human beings. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the rules are determined by the kids. So like on the weekend, they're like, I'm going to be on my phone for, you know, an hour or something like that. And then after that, I won't. But if it's a collaborative decision, then you don't have to be the policeman. So that's one thing. The other thing is we have no phones at tables at all, no phones. And if you're going to take a hike, no phones. If you know you're going out to play a ball game, no phones. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the problems that I heard about that I think needs to be corrected is kids in elementary school take their phone to school with them. And then when they go out for recess, they go on their phone. Uh-uh, mm -hmm. that is really a bad idea. 
-hmm. the phone stays in the class if you have if for some reason you're bringing your phone with you it stays in the class and the main reason you have it is to do research and the teacher should be teaching you how to get information or learn uh, you know if you're studying the civil war how do you get information about the civil war how do you search intelligently or maybe you shouldn't use it at all maybe you should use a computer or a tablet or whatever but no i would not suggest phones at recess oh, that is that runs against the rules for recess uh, phones. Um, so I, you talk about your, your debate with Amy Chua, uh, the tiger mom on Ow. And, and one of the things she says in the debate was she never worried about kindness or happiness. She just wanted her kids to be number one. Um, What's and right? I, she said that. Yeah. And that's so crazy to me. I'm wondering if you're seeing more of that in, 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 in the schools and where you're in the community you're in. Well, I was seeing more of that. A lot of it where people just wanted their kids to be number one. And they were doing things like, oh my God, you got an A minus? Oh, who got the A? <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? Mm -hmm. But you know, the, the pressure on the kids and the competition, it was just crazy. And I was, and um, that was, it was a big battle here in Palo Alto about weighted grades do we want to allow kids to weight the grades? And some people said no. A lot of people said no because they didn't want more competition. People said yes because they said everybody else is weighting the grades. And if they're weighting the grades and our kids are at a disadvantage, anyway, the community decided to weight the grades. And that means that, you know, you can earn a grade point average of 4.5, even 4.6. You're taking all these honors classes. The pressure is like intense. But I've seen situations just recently of students with 4.5 grade point average, perfect SAT scores, perfect everything, who did not get into the school of their choice. So, you know, I'm telling you, the pressure is on. And the parents are the ones who are the most upset. I think the kids are, they reflect the anxiety and the fear and the upset of the parents. But I think we all need to relax because if you look at the leaders of the Fortune 500 companies and say, oh, where'd you go to college? The majority of them did not go to Ivy League schools. Mm -hmm. um, so we just need to keep that in perspective. Your child is going to be fantastic no matter what as long as you trust them and believe in them and give them some independence collaborate with them and treat them with kindness and that is the method and then the madness and the philosophy behind my trick yeah and, and so i'm curious with your daughters i mean they're great students passionate about what they studied what were some of the rules that you used or were there rules or how did they end up they're just naturally enjoyed studying? Well, you, as I mentioned, remember I told you every Saturday we went to the library uh -huh. and we had this laundry basket that I bought. It was quite expensive at that time. It was a wicker laundry basket. Mm -hmm. um, and we would fill it up with books. And then we bring bound, and when you were done with your book, you put it back in the laundry basket so I didn't have to look around the house for all those books. Mm -hmm. And every Saturday we went and returned the ones we had that week and we got the new ones. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So what I had instilled in them is how fun it is to learn. Mm -hmm. So when they went to school, they thought it was really fun to learn. And then they kept it up. As a matter of fact, they were, they were really excited to do workbooks. They thought that was fun. I was like, oh, okay, great. I'll buy you another one. Um, and it was, it, for them, it was sort of gamification. And like, if they can fill out all the blanks, they can do all this stuff. So Janet, who loved math, she just whizzed through all the workbooks. You know, first, second, third, she was just like way ahead in math. She just loved workbooks. Like, okay, that sounds like a good thing. Not hurting anybody. Um, so I think that that's what happened. And then what these habits you start early in life, they continue. Mm -hmm. Because I realized even back then, you know, I was already a teacher. I realized that as a parent of teenagers, my influence was very limited. Mm. They were already going to on a path to doing what they wanted to do. So parents need to take the opportunity when they're small to instill these habits that they want them to carry on later on. Don't train them to do something when they're little and then say, ah, oh, when they get older, they, they'll change that. Bad idea. Don't start bad habits and then expect them to train, change them because they won't. And um, because you're, you're teaching them how to do those things. And if you look at this, uh, the friend of mine wrote a, is writing a book. It'll come out next fall, I think. A.J. Fogg, F-O-G-G -G, at Stanford. And he's writing a book about habits. And he says that what you should do is change habits in tiny steps, little steps, one little step after another after another. I didn't know about his book, but I'm really happy it's coming out because he's reinforcing what I said. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why I say to parents, if you start these habits when they're little, they're going to want to keep those up and um, you might want to change them. Really, really such great advice. I have so much respect for you. Thank you so much for your time and everything you've shared on this call. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure and it's great to meet you. You too. I'm happy uh, that we both come from the same part of the world. Yeah, thank you. Um, super excited to share uh, uh, so much good stuff here. And I love how we end it, like start those habits early. Um, yes. Don't wait, because it's so easy to procrastinate, so easy to pick up after them and, and right. not, not do the hard stuff. That's right. Thanks again.